Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show is Linda Clemens. Linda is a professor of 19th century American and Native American history and the current director of the Honors Program at Illinois State University in Normal, Illinois. She's the author of two previous books about the Dakota frontier, and the book we're going to discuss today is her most recent book, Unrepentant Dakota Woman, Angelique Renville and the Struggle for Indigenous Identity. Linda, welcome to History 605. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. The book is released uh, as we're recording this uh, next week, or as this show is going out, uh, the 22nd of this month by South Dakota Historical Society Press. And we're pleased to work with Linda on this uh, project. The project shares the perspective of one particular person in the midst of significant societal changes. Angelique Renville's experiences can cast some light on issues regarding family, on kinship, and on different meanings that those traditions have in the Dakota culture, and I guess uh, what we might say is Euro-American culture. And I think your book raises a lot of really compelling issues on that, so congratulations for having writing it. Thank you. Uh, I wonder if you can share with us how you came across Angelique Renville which, by the way, I should I should note, you go through a number of Renvilles in the book. I looked in the index just now, and, and the Renvilles are replete throughout the index in the text. And I wonder if you are aware that the current chairman of the Sisson and Wapitan tribe is a Renville. Yeah, definitely. As okay. um, I, I talk about um, in my book, um, towards the end of her life, she moved with her family to that reservation okay. and um, certainly had strong kinship ties with her family. So yeah. undoubtedly, many of her relatives still live there today. Uh, how did you come across Angelique, though? Was it something from a previous book or research? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in my two previous books, um, especially in the first book, I really focused on the interaction of um, Dakota families with Protestant missionaries affiliated with the um, acronym ABCFM, American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. They were the most prominent missionary organization of um, the early 19th century into the late 19th century. So um, I had read a lot of the missionary correspondence mm -hmm. from the ABCFM missionaries in Minnesota working to convert the Dakota to Christianity, especially the Riggs family and the Williamson family. And um, the Minnesota Historical Society has an amazing um, 
opportunity for all researchers in that they've digitized a lot of the Riggs letters. I had come across letters written by Angelique Grenville as I was researching my other books. And I was fascinated by the fact that um, a Dakota woman beginning when she was nine years old, then through 16, through her teens and into her thirties had left written letters, which is a rarity um, for Native American and especially Native American women to leave mm -hmm. a written record. And I do have to say also they were written in English as well. I came upon these letters and I was just always in the back of my mind, wanted to know more about her and her story and her life and how okay. she came to write those letters to the Protestant missionaries. Well, and perhaps we should do a little scene setting there. So what's the time frame we're talking about? And maybe just briefly describe the arc of her biography. What occurs to Angelique? Yeah, absolutely. So she was born in Minnesota, um, likely um, at Lockheed Pearl. Um, which would later become the site of um, uh, ABCFM mission. And um, then she, she grew up as a Dakota child with her mother and likely her female relatives. Um, at the age of six, she was adopted by the Riggs family. And that is the word that they used. They became her adopted parents. And then she lived with the Riggs family for 10 years and really became part of um, the missionaries' drive to convert and, as they called it, civilize Dakota children. Um, she really moved through different worlds throughout her life, um, starting out with her Dakota family, her Dakota kin, especially her Dakota mother, um, and then moving into the missionary world. And she even went, as I talk in the book, to Ohio, where right. she went to a female seminary. At the age of 16, 17? Yes. Mm -hmm. When she comes back to Minnesota, what prompts her to return? Um, it was in the midst of the U.S.-Dakota War of 1862. Um, her closest sister, Agnes, had died at Fort Snelling mm -hmm. um, in the concentration camp there after the war. And um, her mother really wanted her to come home to her family. Angelique wanted to come to home to her family as well. And... Um, the Riggs family decided that she could not. They wouldn't send her money to come back to Minnesota to her family. They thought that she would be safer in um, Ohio away from her family in the war, which to a certain extent was true. Yeah. But also they wanted to keep her away from especially the influence of her mother. Mm -hmm. So she really had to fight to come back to Minnesota. What would she have known about the just the horrendous events of the the massacre and the hangings and the whole scope of the of the what was called the Dakota uprising what would she have known from that at her school in Ohio or was she getting letters and being informed yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely so by the because she had been taken in by the missionaries at age 6 mm -hmm. she was literate she was um, bilingual she spoke both Dakota and English so throughout her time at the mission and then when she went to Ohio, she received letters from her Dakota relatives, some in English, some in Dakota. So she knew what was happening at home from her relatives, um, specifically her cousins who are also bilingual and literate as well. Okay. Um, her mother was not literate as far as I could tell, but she used her other Renville <laughs> relatives who were literate to send her information in Ohio. 
Um, also, again, because she was literate, she could have read newspapers at the time. Um, she was very well informed of, of what was happening, not just in Minnesota, but throughout the United States. Um, for example, when she was at the boarding school in um, Ohio, she knew all about the Civil War. And one of the things that she did as part of her schooling was they sewed things for the Civil War soldiers. Okay. So she definitely was aware of everything that was happening, both at a national level, but also at the level of her relatives in Minnesota. So what's her response to that? Does she, do, she does return to Minnesota, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, as I argue in the book, over the years, she was increasingly disillusioned and upset about her relationship with the Riggs family for, for multiple reasons that we can get into later, especially with the trauma of the U.S.-Dakota War. She wrote letter after letter asking for money to come back to Minnesota, to come back to her family, and she was always denied. So she eventually wrote that she would become the chief housekeeper of the Riggs family. Um, Mary Riggs, who was kind of the matriarch of the Riggs family, yeah. was ill and couldn't take care of her home, take care of her younger children. And so Angelique, I argue, um, very intentionally said that she would come home and, and be their chief housekeeper and kind of fill the shoes of, of Mary Riggs. And that's when they sent her money to come back. She went back to Minnesota, um, stopped maybe overnight at the Riggs home and then left and went into Dakota territory to be with her mother and her brothers who were working as scouts in Dakota territory and joined her, her kin there. So I okay. argue it was very intentional of what she said to get what she had wanted for years. How does she come to view being an adopted daughter of Stephen Riggs. What would that term in, in her mind frame as a youngster or teenage girl mean? Yeah, absolutely. That is the term the Riggs use, that mm -hmm. she was their adopted daughter. And in the missionaries' letters, um, they were quite sentimental about um, their, their Dakota children, as they called them. They said that they loved them, um, you know, use kind of kinship terms to refer to them, but they were not really their children in that they were projects that they were working to convert them to Christianity and to make them, according to the terminology of the time, civilized, mm -hmm. meaning following Anglo-American gender roles, wearing Anglo-American clothes, speaking English, um, learning to read and write. So there's kind of a tension between that we love them, they're part of the family, and yet this other project of forcibly assimilating them to American culture. And I think you can see that same tension within Angelique. I mean, she lived with the Riggs family from age six to 16. And in her early letters, you see that she really talked about the Riggs children as her siblings, that they mm -hmm. were her brother and sister. Okay. She talked about how she loved the youngest um, Riggs baby, Cornelia. So um, I think certainly she kind of adopted that terminology as well, because that's what she was part of. But I think certain incidents over time built up that 
had her increasingly question that supposedly familial relationship. So how she might have felt about being a daughter in the house and this, even in Dakota kinship rules of the, or traditional ways in the Dakota ways that would be a part of the family. It's not surprising that she would take after siblings that might be, uh, even though she's adopted in. Is there legal paperwork that she was adopted? I don't know how adoption worked in the 1840s and 50s. What would that um, have looked like? So she became um, the guardian of, okay. Stephen Briggs was her guardian. Okay. So here, let me actually pull this up here because sure. I have um, the way it worked in the 19th century. So Stephen Briggs took the adoption of Angelique and actually her sister Agnes, who was about two years younger than Angelique, one step further by becoming their legal guardian. So according to Minnesota law at the time, a judge could appoint a guardian for a minor under the age of 14 whose father was deceased and whose mother was, quote, unmarried and deemed incompetent. So that is what Minnesota law said in the 1850s. So in 1857, Stephen Briggs filed paperwork with Brown County, Minnesota, to obtain the legal guardianship of Angelique, who was 13 at the time, and her sister Agnes, who was aged 11. And the court ruled in favor of Stephen Riggs becoming their guardian. They said that as a Dakota, Angelique's mother was, quote, without the means of support or education and totally disqualified to discharge the general duties of civilized life because she was of Dakota and French blood mixed. So that was the ruling. They ruled that Angelique and Agnes's mother was incompetent by the fact that she was Dakota mm -hmm. and Stephen Riggs became the girl's legal guardian. Have you been able to sort out what Agnes's and Angelique's mother thought of all this? Where, where is the father deceased? Yes, by this time their father was deceased. So at the age of six, when she starts living with the Riggs, is, is the father deceased then? Um, not quite, no. It oh. was a few years later. Okay. So as time passes and the legal conditions present themselves, then when she's 13 and older, then he takes this to the probate court to get this, the guardianship done. Yes. Okay. And another thing that I didn't mention is that as guardian, um, he controlled all of the assets, any land that the girls might have, any funds. Stephen Riggs legally controlled that by law and could do what he wanted with any assets that the girls had to support them. And um, both girls had 960 acres total, so 430 acres of land each. And once Stephen Riggs became their guardian, he had control over those acres and could do what he wanted with those acres to support the girls as he saw fit. How did those girls get that land? It, it's kind of a long story, but it goes back to um, U.S. Dakota history. The Treaty of 1830 created um, a 320,000-acre, what was called at the time, a half-breed tract. It was located on the border between Minnesota and Wisconsin. It was deemed, according to this treaty, 
that the president could assign up to 640 acres of these reserve lands for each quote, and this was terminology used at the time, mm-hmm. half-breed Dakota. And okay. um, Angelique, Agnes, their father, um, some of her other siblings were deemed half-breed Dakota. And as such, they received acres from this quote-unquote half-breed track. And that is the acres that then the missionary controlled once he became their legal guardian. The background here of almost two centuries of fur trade and Mm -hmm. French and Dakota and Ojibwe or Ashinaabe relationships of trading furs, the international fur market had led to two centuries of families being mixed blood in in many ways, right? And so... Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And um, Angelique's grandfather was mm-hmm. was a preeminent um, Dakota fur trader at Lockheed Pearl. Right. So Angelique throughout her life really moved between different worlds. So part of certainly fur trade culture, Dakota culture through her mother, but through her other relatives as well, living with the missionaries. Um, so she really moved through throughout a lot of different frontiers and a lot of different identities. As she comes back then to Minnesota and then goes into what is now Sisson-Wapen or Dakota Territory to join her mother, is she aware of the land that, or what's happened to that? That land rights and that uh, tract obligations from a treaty of 1830 might be a dead letter by 1862, huh? Stephen Riggs had sold 120 acres of her land out of her allotment. So she still did have some left. Um, He sold 120 acres when she was 16, and he said he was using it to fund her time in Ohio at the Ohio Female College, so the the boarding school that he sent her to in Ohio. So, and again, that was his legal right at the time. He was Mm -hmm. her guardian, Mm -hmm. and he could sell her land as he saw fit to support her. So what he did um, was legal according to Minnesota law at the time. Now, of course, it's a completely different issue if Angelique, her mother, and her siblings wanted to use her land in that way, but they didn't have a choice. And the legal background was all stacked in favor of the missionaries in terms of he was her guardian, Mm -hmm. he could use her land as he wanted. And then what becomes of her when she returns then to Dakota Territory? How is her relationship with the Riggs by now? Well, they thought that she was going to return to be their their chief housekeeper. And certainly up until this point, um, she really had been, um, quote unquote, a dutiful daughter in that um, she had done what the Riggses wanted, that she went to um, Ohio, she went to the school, when they asked her to do so, well, I don't know if they asked her, they told her to do so. Mm-hmm. And the school did not go well for her. And she wanted to come home, but they instead placed her with a friend of the missionary where she served a year as um, an unpaid housekeeper. So mm-hmm. again, as I said, she was a dutiful daughter, but these things kind of built up over time that made her start kind of questioning her role in the Riggs family and really started to have her think about kind of, I guess I would call it almost emancipating herself from them. So when she came back to Minnesota, she left 
and she went to join her family. Now, I have a letter from Stephen Riggs saying that he's not happy with her choice, but she made her choice and, you know, we're just going to let her go. But then everything changed when they found out that she just didn't go back to Dakota Territory to be with her mother and brothers, although that was part of it. She went and she married what they, the missionary saw as a completely unsuitable Dakota man. Um, his English name was Charles Crawford. That's what the missionaries called him. And he was unsuitable because he was already married to another woman at the time. And according to the missionaries, polygamy was one of the worst things that was part of Dakota culture. And they couldn't believe that this girl, this now woman that they had raised from age six, had so turned their her back on all of their teachings. Mm-hmm. So they began um, a letter writing campaign and made all of these plans to quote unquote rescue her. They were okay. going to rescue her from her new husband and take her back to the fold and you know let her see the error of her ways for what she had done. And how did she respond to that letter writing campaign? One of the most amazing things, and and I kind of started with um, what drew me to her story were her letters. So Mm -hmm. I have letters that Angelique wrote from Dakota Territory. And at first, when she first left Minnesota, went to Dakota Territory, she was apologetic. She wrote that she was sorry. She was sorry she upset the missionaries that um, she actually said she was a little worried about living in tents, as she said, or teepees, because she had not done that. And she had been taught by the missionaries that that was a a quote unquote uncivilized way to live. So um, she, she was almost apologetic. But even in her letter of apology, she finished by saying, but I'm not coming back. And she asked the rigs to send her her trunk. Of, of things. And, um, but from that initial letter of, you know, kind of, I'm sorry, very apologetic, her subsequent letters were very, were angry. Yeah. That Riggs never sent her her trunk. And the letters were, you know, I'm not coming back. Send me my trunk. Why have you not sent me my trunk? So you could see kind of this anger coming through where initially she tried to kind of placate them, you know, fit mm-hmm. into a role as a dutiful daughter while still striking out on her own. But subsequent letters really showed that um, that she was angry and that yeah. she didn't want to, quote unquote, be rescued. Right. And that this was a choice she was she made and she was going to stick to that choice and they, they needed to accept it. What happens but, to her little sister? You mentioned that uh, Agnes uh, um, also has quite a story. Yeah, unfortunately, Agnes um, passed away from measles in the months following the U.S. Dakota War. Angelique's mother and many, many of her Renville relatives and her sister Agnes were imprisoned at Fort Snelling following the war. And um, the death rate was high, but especially for children. And Agnes, um, unfortunately, caught measles Mm -hmm. and she did pass away. And I think that was one of the more precipitating reasons that Angelique really wanted to come home from Ohio and be with her family, that her mother was distraught over the death of Agnes and wanted Angelique to come and be with her. 
Well, all this kind of brings into pretty sharp relief that this distinction of family um, within these two cultures at the time Mm -hmm. of the 19th century, right? I mean, polygamous marriage is uh, not only condoned, but almost expected in in the Dakota families at the time and their notions of kinship, very different than what Stephen Riggs would say. Was he Presbyterian? Yes. So the typical Presbyterian from East Coast or wherever, uh, largely funded by folks out of Boston and Philadelphia and things like that. I mean, at the wider level, these two societies have very different notions of the ideal family relationship, I guess. Maybe you just put it that way. So do you see in her letters evidence of her debating the benefit of one over the other? In other words, is there a kind of a... She's schooled in some theology, I would imagine, and having gone to... She would be uh, conversant, I would imagine, in some Christian theology, and then, of course, very conversant in, in Dakota life ways of traditions and kinship. Is she debating these things and kind of on an academic sense, picking the one that she wants? Or is she, maybe I'm asking, is she flying from Riggs or toward her Dakota family? I think it might be both. Absolutely. That, and you bring up a really important question about the role of Christianity in her life. Yeah. In that um, certainly, again, from age six, she had been brought up by the Riggs family to accept Christianity. She did become a member of the mission church along with her sister Agnes. And um, interestingly, when she was at the school in Ohio, I have a letter from her where she is frankly shocked at the behavior of the other girls at the school, that she thinks that they're not good Christians. Mm -hmm. So um, you can kind of see just, to a certain extent, a very sheltered religious community that she had been brought up in and that that sheltered religious community isn't even what perhaps other Euro-Americans are following at the time. Right. So she was shocked at the behavior of these these girls at the school that were not Christian. Right. So we we should probably point out this was not a school for just Indian children. She was the only Native American, only Dakota at the school. Right, right. It was the school. It was the um, Ohio Female College located in Cincinnati. And it was for middle and mainly upper class Euro-American girls, aged 12 through 18. And it was almost um, like a college that... Of Mm -hmm. course, um, besides Oberlin, women could not go, you know, could not attend college at this in this era. Mm -hmm. But the Ohio Female College was very close to a high school slash college education for women. So she was sent there. She was actually sent there with Martha Riggs, who was um, the daughter of Stephen and Mary Riggs. So the two of them went to this school. So no, she was the only Dakota at the school. And Martha was... also commented on the lack of religion in these <laughs> these girls. Well, I can imagine being raised in Thomas Riggs's house. You might uh, find that when you're outside of that house, suddenly the rest of the world is not as Christian and might, might, might stun you, whether yes. you're Martha or Angelique. Yeah? So to continue your question about Christianity, yeah. once she returns to Minnesota, leaves the Riggs families, angers them by not wanting to be rescued. She continues to have kind of a tortured 
um, relationship with Christianity that I have some letters where the rigs continue to do a circuit around what is now South and North Dakota, preaching to camps. Mm -hmm. And they, they did encounter Angelique and she still wanted to be involved in singing at the church services. And she actually wanted to have her daughter baptized and Stephen Riggs refused to baptize her daughter. And I think, that was a very important moment for her where she really kind of turned away from the church. So even after she left the Riggs family and entered into a marriage that they didn't approve of, I think she still found Christianity to have kind of meaning in her life and she wanted it to be part of her life. But the subsequent actions over the years, I think, pushed her more away from Christianity. Well, this has all been a very interesting discussion, and she certainly shed a lot of light into uh, this time frame. And I'm glad that we uh, had some of this discussion go into that bit about the family roles and how Christianity meant something even after all this turmoil had occurred to Angelique. Ultimately, she she passes away. What year does she pass away? 1876. 1876. And... Uh, how does her marriage work out? That is a really interesting question. And unfortunately, I have a, a big gap in mm. in um, her letters. So I have letters from Angelique when she first left the missionaries and married her husband and went to Dakota Territory. And then um, there's a gap. And then I have letters again in um unfortunately right before she passed away the early 1870s where she hires a lawyer to fight to get her remaining acres returned to her i i think that uh, so many different parts of her story um tie into the title unrepentant dakota woman that she really made her own choices, really worked against the constraints that she faced by being not only a woman in the early 19th century, but an American Indian woman in the early 19th century. Women in general did not hire lawyers to sue for their property, um, or many didn't. And here is a Dakota woman doing that. Well, and she she had a very good education for a woman in her yes. position. Yes, absolutely. I argue that she used that knowledge, yeah. especially as she got older, to to fight for herself, to fight for her family, and to fight for her, her land, and also to finally fight for the end of her guardianship from Stephen Riggs. Oh, well, when did that end? Or does it? As far as I know, never. So legally, it was supposed to end when she turned 18 or got married. She had done both of those, and Stephen Riggs refused to let her out of the guardianship, even though legally he was supposed to. The issue was he said he owed her her money. That one of the most amazing sources I found was a handwritten account book by Stephen Riggs, where he wrote down everything that he spent on Angelique. So a dress, clothing tuition. Um, he also charged her interest every year 
which I tried to look up legally if he could do that. He showed it to the court and they allowed it. So I assume it was legal according to the time, but she was in debt to him according to um, his calculations. So he refused to release her from her guardianship um, until she agreed to let him sell another 120 of her acres and use that to pay off her back debt. And she refused. And so they were at a standstill. And at that point, unfortunately, she passed away from tuberculosis. Yeah. So I don't know how the story would have have ended. But even though legally she was 18, she was past 18, far past 18, she was far past being married and he still would not rescind the guardianship. Do you have any of his own, other than the papers and documents he presented to the court, any motivations for his of his explanation for his reasons? Yeah, his reason was that um, he was her guardian and that as her guardian, he had spent money supporting her and fulfilling mm-hmm. his guardianship. And legally, unfortunately for Angelique, legally he was backed up in terms of he was her guardian. He could sell her land. He could use her assets as he felt fit. Well, all this brings into pretty clear picture, I think, of the distinctions and the differences between these two cultures. And mm-hmm. in the end, though, uh, Unrepentant Dakota Woman, I thought was a great title as well. And explains that at the, it seems like at the end of the day, it's the individual that makes the, de- the decisions about how they're going to live their life and fight for what they believe in. So she's Absolutely. a fascinating lady. Absolutely. And I do want to stress that these were the choices she made. And certainly other people in her, in a similar situation could make very different choices. Well, Linda, thanks for joining us on History 605. Uh, congratulations on the book. Again, the title is Unrepentant Dakota Woman, Angelique Renville, and the Struggle for Indigenous Identity. Linda, thanks a lot. Thank you so much for having me. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.